start to slowly kind of see what other offerings are out there. Get educated, ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask simple questions is what I tell individuals. The simple questions are sometimes the best ones if it helps you to learn. Keep pushing forward. Continuous improvement, man, and live my life for trying to get better 1% every day. Listen, too many of us spend most of our waking hours working hard for our money and have little time left to figure out how to make our money work hard for us. We default to handing our savings off to advisors who make their livings off our assets while we wait until 65 to enjoy any of the benefits. The problem is we need a quick way to gain the knowledge to take back the reins on managing our money while avoiding the misleading media or just straight bad advice. My goal is to give you all my knowledge, full-time research, and connections in a distilled version so we all can make our money work harder for us. This show focuses on ways you can take back control and intelligently invest outside the stock market to benefit your life today as well as into retirement. I'm Brian O'Neill, and welcome to the Harder Working Money Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Harder Working Money Podcast. We have a great guest today, a normal guy that started as a W-2, went into single family, and now is moving on into investing in multifamily and maybe self-storage and things like that. He's going to give his story and where he came from and where he's going. Welcome uh, Melvin Landry to the show. Hey, man. Welcome. Hey, man. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, no problem. I just wanted to focus more on with you, just the normal guy backstory to start with, and then go into some real estate versus stock market, and then just some sure. basics type stuff. And then what do you want to cover? Is there anything in particular or... Hey, we could talk about the my journey started real estate 2005. It was a passive endeavor for me, even though I was accumulating properties. And it got to the point all of a sudden, man, four or five years in, I got 50 properties. Like, oh crap, this is a business. Never really put my foot on on the accelerator. I was just kind of just like, just, I'm I'm worried about corporate America. I'm worried about, you know, my professor. I'm worried about my jobs. I'm not worried about real estate, but it brought a good amount of cash, uh, passive income. So uh, this is why I was single. I meet Jackie. We get married. We've been married 10 years. Jack has the vision to open a business. I'm like, okay, let's do it, right? We're not able to open the business unless I kind of have that capital, right, from the business, from all these rental properties I've accumulated over the years. So but you guys still have W-2 jobs, though, too, right? I do. She doesn't. Yeah. She's retired, so she's doing the back end. So, uh, you know, we do the business, right? And the business is a total flop. I told you that, right? Dallas, lost a million dollars, closed the store before COVID. Well, thank goodness I had those rental properties. Let's go into it, because the listeners don't don't know that story. So why don't you tell us, you know, how you went yeah, from yeah, W-2 I, I to- tell it. You ventured into a, a startup business, all that stuff. Ventured into a startup business. Wife was the face of it. I was kind of like the backer, kind of financially, and uh, we made it happen. We opened up Triple Net Restaurant in a Class A development in Dallas, and uh, it was a grind for four years, a slow grind. You know, she worked 70 to 80 hours a week, never collected a paycheck. This is for four years. My mother-in-law started working in year two, <laughs> 20 to 30 hours a week. She's 74 now. Never got a check. I started working in the business heavy year three, year four, 30 hours a week in between my other jobs. You know, I got multiple jobs, catering, doing weddings, calling on uh, office buildings and got it to a six figure endeavor. And we still couldn't pay ourselves. So it was a flawed model. Uh, we decided to close it. And this was a franchise? Uh, franchise. Yeah. Yeah. Franchise. Uh, decided what to close franchise? it. Can't say. Sorry. So, oh, in India. Yeah. yeah. Can I say? What type of food? How about that? Desserts, sweet desserts. Desserts, got it. Okay, so sweet yeah, desserts, yeah, yeah. got it. Yep, desserts and uh, 
we knew at the end of year three, after looking at the balance sheets and things of that nature, like it's not sustainable, man. Okay. So, so you were working your W2, you still had your single family sort of on the side turning away. So what do you guys do? So when, when you pivoted, that business didn't work. Yep. Yeah. It comes with recourse, right? Everything comes with recourse. So we, you know, the landlord wasn't, of course, wasn't happy. So we, uh, we figured out a way to settle with legal fees that to slowly sell off some of the portfolio, right? To accumulate uh, cash, legal fees are ramping up and ramping up pretty fast. So uh, really, really fast, right? So, you know, you deal with the uh, franchisors and their group and their representatives and, you know, Potential arbitration and those things are not cheap. They're not cheap at all. So, uh, yeah, I mean, ended up got to the point where it's almost so half, half of the portfolio needed the cash, man. And the opportunity, the market was like blazing nice, right? 19, 20. And it was COVID, but you know, people were looking for deals. So we were able to move some property and uh, able to amicably settle, get to a point where, as you know what, we can depart. We don't have to be friends, but we can depart and kind of keep it moving. You know, that was a learning experience as an entrepreneur. First chance I had kind of to be a uh, entrepreneurship owner from a restaurant standpoint outside of real estate. And it uh, didn't quite go so well, but it was a learning experience. And I'll say, like I tell other folks uh, I'll speak to, thank God for real estate. If I didn't have it, <laughs> yeah, possible chance that we'd be bankrupt. And, you know, who knows, probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. So, yeah. Okay. So where'd you go next after that? After that, you know, you're in COVID, right? You know, you're trying to, at the time, COVID 2020, our son's five, six, right? Trying to, you know, dealing with that in. So the first day of COVID, my wife goes back to work in corporate America. So uh, trying to build things back. And mind you, we still have an SBA loan that we're paying for. And by the way, we didn't get finished paying for until 13 months ago. So you still owe on your obligation. And we're never one not to pay our obligation. So wife goes back to work, man. We're in COVID. I'm working. And uh, we're trying to rebuild. Kind of uh, slowly, uh, slowly idle on the single family real estate front. But, you know, just trying to maintain within the COVID world. And then, uh, you know, I saw a couple of marketing parameters for webinar uh, tying into, you know, multifamily. And I was like, man, you know, I know I've been successful in single family. You know, I got an education. I got a mentor. I did very well. And uh, kind of passively with my foot off the gas, I got up to 62 properties. I'm sure That's I a lot. Well in <laughs> That's yeah. a lot. Yeah. But it's over eight years. So Still. Yeah. So, I mean, I was just buying foreclosures, man, buying foreclosures. Education taught me to kind of get direct marketing in place. I would send letters. I got many jobs, but I'm I'm a hard worker, man. So I try to get at least 10, 15 letters out a week. I'm signing them and sellers are calling. I want to sell. I don't want this. You know, I got behind on taxes. Can you take it over? So I had learned strategies how to kind of uh, take over liens, get them tendered, get the property fixed up, get renters in it for cash flow, wholesale some, flip some. And it became very profitable, man. But, uh, it wasn't my main focus at the time, right? So, but it's I was still a job. That. Yeah, that's still, still it's a job. Major job. It's a job, yeah. right? One of my many jobs, and I'm a, of a job mindset at the time. Yeah, man. So slowly doing some additional single family, but you know we're, we're kind of scarred from the uh, the business ordeal, man. So saw the uh, opportunity to participate in a webinar for multifamily. I'm like, let me just give it a whirl. What I got to lose? Decided to go back to Dallas because I was living in Dallas six years. We moved to Pittsburgh, kind of like start fresh, if you will. And we had a line on yeah. that and uh, ended up going back to Dallas. I'm like, what the heck? Going back here. Man, went to the uh, went to a rat race to retirement seminar. I'm like, whoa, whoa, this is some different stuff. I can scale how fast? I can get, you know, I can save on taxes even more than what, you know, as a business owner, right? You get some benefit of, of tax benefit. But I can do even more with bonus depreciation. I didn't know about that. I wasn't really that educated on tax law. I didn't even care as an average Joe. Didn't really care. 
like, man, other people doing it? And, you know, I was like, wow. So I'm like, okay, this is something that I may want to consider. So I looked at the investment for mentoring. I'm just like, look, the same model that proved me before in single family should correlate and hold true in multifamily. So I didn't hesitate to invest the money in education. Didn't hesitate at all. It wasn't, oh, should I think about it? I was just like, I called my wife. <laughs> we got to do this. We got to do this. I mean, it works in single family. It's going to work in multifamily. It's the mindset. She was like, uh, okay. Well, we jumped in and did it, man. Started going through educational modules, started meeting people, uh, started going to events, started kind of changing the mindset slowly in terms of opening up your ecosystem to multifamily, scalability, what, things like that. What was that mindset? Just the scalability side of it? The scalability, man, it's just like, man, I can buy one building. I could buy a 60-unit building, could be in a better shape than managing tennis toilets and termites of single family, right? I had built a power team that took eight years. So I figure I can scale relatively quickly and kind of change the game. And that retirement parameter can actually be now a little quicker versus what my initial mindset was. Oh, man, I'll work till I'm 60 and I'll call it quits and live the rest of my rest of my life. I changed that mindset within the last 12 months. Be like, no, we're not doing that. We need to shut it down three to four years max, passively invest, get to know a bunch of people in this space and keep pushing forward and not take our foot off the accelerator, but spread down the track. So, so let's talk yeah. about your single family just real quick for some yeah. people listening that, you know, have no rentals have, you know, they just put money in the stock market. You hear 50 or 60 single family homes. And that's like, that sounds like a big chunk. Are, are you managing those? Did you hit a ceiling where you just, it was becoming harder to get, you know, beyond the financial side of it, but just managing 60 individual locations and renters well, and all the problems. Yeah, as I gradually ramped up 20, 30 units, I was kind of doing it myself. I was the de facto property manager living in in Nebraska at the time. Wow. Folks folks knew that. Folks knew that, but I was, you know, I was getting out to Western PA at least once a quarter, sometimes twice when I had issues. And I had a separate I, and I had a system set up, man. I had a Google Voice number, right? Folks don't text my real phone, they text me Google Voice, I'll know, okay. And I'm kind of handle and I had core contractors who I had knew like and trust. Hey man, I need you to go ahead and take care of this here. And they take care of it, just send me the bill. And they were like on the open retainer, right? Got it. I had my grass, you know, grass cut and HVAC. I had all my core guys. And they were just a roller dash, right? Just kind of go through mm-hmm. and they would handle stuff for me. And I was managing that for a few, you know, a few years. 2030. I had to get a management, man. It's just like, got it. Okay. I was going to say just leasing 60 alone, at least a week. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did affordable housing, which made it really, okay. really easy, believe it or not. And I would get calls, calls, calls. I guess I was like a, le- a mini leasing agent too. They, hey, I heard you. I heard you have rentals. And do you have anything coming up in this area? So I guess I was a de facto leasing agent too until it's just like, oh, this is too much. Because, you know, I had a nine to five. I was teaching a few classes, living, <laughs> traveling, doing other stuff. So, um, yeah, I got a property management and it got to the point where it uh, took a lot off my plate. But they were still, they still text me. Hey, I got this issue. Sometimes 12, 1 o'clock in the morning because they knew I was the owner, right? So, uh, yeah. you know, you kind of direct them to this and this. So, yeah, man, so now that you're, job. now you're focused on multifamily, they don't text you. Even no. as the GP, G, the GP in charge, there's a whole no. layer between you and the renter. Yeah. I don't get any calls. Don't want any calls. I'm part of a team. We're talking, we're managing the managers. You know, it's going quite well. And I'm slowly, slowly kind of shifting multifamily self-storage, single family kind of going down. So moving, moving along and uh, kind of retreating from the single family ordeal. It was a good run, though. 
So I'll say that. So how about real estate versus the stock market? Did you have money in the stock market? Have you always just done real estate? You know, I do have money in the stock market and I have stock money in the stock market just for one reason. I got an eight-year-old. I'm teaching him, son, you should consider investing in stuff that you utilize. So my stock account is pretty depleted. I've actually pulled money out of my stock account to invest passively, but I've do it simply for the fact for him to show him just the basics of, of, of investing. So, you know, he's, he wants to be a commercial pilot, right? We have stock in Boeing. We have stock in Airbus. We have stock in United. We have stock in Southwest. Of course, as every kid, Brian, you know, you have two. They love McDonald's, right? We have stock in McDonald's. We have stock in Costco. We have stock in Walmart, right? So teaching him to, you know, as an investor, right? Keep, Alternative assets, number one, but you know what? You need to understand and know the premise of stocks as well. And uh, he sees his account. I put a few hundred dollars in there a week and this is a mass. It's just like, you know, you can see how compound wealth matters from that standpoint. So for the basics, I still do invest in stocks, but it's only for my son's benefit. Otherwise, I wouldn't even deal with it because you have no control. You don't have control. Yeah, that's true. That's something Uh, I sort of recently in the last few years, I was all stock and yeah. you're just, you're following, even if you're deep into it, which most people won't go deep into the earnings calls of a company and things like that. Even when I did that and you hear these earnings calls and everything looks like the stock should go up and it goes down and it's like, why? It it's oh, some massive fund is shorting it and this is happening. It's like, I'm, this is ridiculous. You know, like, yes, long-term, the, the, the trend does have a percentage, but you're just, you're right. You're just riding it. There's no, you know, you're, you're basically just need to ride. And you're, you can fall off for no good reason. So, you know, yeah, that, uh, that's not a good feeling, man. It took what last year or two for me to kind of realize that so it's just like now nah, i'll do it for the sake of showing my son how to invest a very minimal amount keeping him educated keeping him understanding and that's that's to the extent of that <laughs> yeah. So, yeah like i like alternate investments more now because i think like i have more control i have more control to pick it i can meet the person that's running it or the Brilliant. you know the, the, the small company it's not as i mean yes there are market cycles and conditions that can affect it but you know what they are. It's pretty obvious. It's not like someone comes in and buys up 50% of all the self-storage in the area in one year and then tanks something. I mean, yeah. it, it's easy to, to see the trends, basically. And some of these assets obviously you know, are resistant, I would say, not immune, but resistant to these resistant. trends. So, That's you know, obviously word. you don't yeah, be in yeah. an office, you don't be in an office right now, but that was, you could see that even before COVID, some of the office stuff wasn't always doing great. Um, so yeah, you had time to adjust, I guess you would say. COVID didn't just cause the office thing. I mean, retail was also hurting as well. Malls were dying. Like you could see the right on the wall on a lot of these asset classes. So I like the control side of it. I had a lot of money put in the stock market when I had some great years and I just, I couldn't sleep at night just knowing like, who knows what the government's going to do, what's going to happen. And long term, I know you can leave it in you'll pretty much be okay. But there's a lot of stats, especially if you start looking at inflation and I mean, people in this country haven't really dealt with that, but where we are in the, in the, uh, the money cycle of the dollar 9% inflation adjusted, I think it is for the stock market is not going to get you into retirement if our money if our money supply does what Ray Dalio the largest hedge fund manager in the world says it's going to do your 9% ain't going to let you retire and the stock market is probably not going to do well if you know at some point when that that starts to unravel it might not be in 2 or 3 years but I'm 41 by the time I'm 65 it's going to happen the dollar is going to have a major major crisis and 
I want to have my my money and assets and things that people need. You need buildings, you need housing, you need apartments. Like that will ride through those things. It will ride. But the, Stocks and companies, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. But tell, yeah. tell them, Brian, get diversified. Okay. <laughs> tell them. So that's Melvin's podcast, Get Diversified. Make sure yeah. you guys uh, check it out. Okay, I had to jump in here real quick. I hope you're loving this interview as much as I am. To get all our content and stay up to date, make sure you follow us on social media under Brian underscore O'Neill underscore investor on Facebook and Instagram. And also remember to follow this podcast if you're listening to an audio. And if you're on YouTube watching the video, make sure you subscribe to this channel. Okay, back to the interview. Okay, yeah. so we talked about stock markets. You're a normal guy, you know, yeah, you had... 50 or 60, you know, uh, single family units. Yep. You're moving into apartments. How do you make money as a passive investor in apartments? Like, what is it? Because some people think it's it's like a REIT, which is sort of a, you know, a market traded fund. It's not. This is you are a percentage owner in the actual LLC that owns a building. How do you, how do they, how do they make money? Like, how does this work? So basically, right, when you're evaluating opportunities, particularly for for apartments, one of the things that me and my wife, we're, we're pretty keen on is in terms of understanding that IRR percentage, which is a big deal for us. Another one that we're really keen on is in terms of the bonus depreciation, right? How we can really help mitigate our tax bill, which is, for me, that's number one. Mitigating my tax bill. I mean, distributions comes, that's fine. I understand being in real estate, right, that this everything's cyclical. Right. So chances of earning distributions from uh, an apartment syndication, in many cases, it's 50 50. Everything's projected. Right. And you need to kind of get educated uh, in terms of what those projections are. But for me, being able to get bonus depreciation, minimize my tax liability is key. And also, you know what, the, the, the distributions from the cash flow, for me, that's a cherry on top. For other folks, it may be their prime prime reason for one to invest. But for me, it's getting the bonus depreciation and being able to garner cash flow is is, is an added extra for me. That's what I look at. So additionally, I look at other ways of how potentially I can invest. I got educated thanks to getting into a program in terms of leveraging your self-directed IRA. You know, I've worked many jobs over the years, Brian. And you know what? I had four 401k sitting out in the ecosystem doing nothing but collecting dust and losing a few pennies every year. Like, I didn't know you can do that. So quickly moved those to a custodian, self-directed IRA custodian, and started investing in deals that I thought were favorable. Uh, again, minimize my tax liability, getting upside, right? And I had cash to deploy as well. So uh, one of the things I tell individuals is, you know what, with, with cash, right, you can really take advantage of the bonus depreciation on a self-directed IRA. Make sure you check with your tax consultant because everyone's situation is different. But taking advantage of that up, upside is a risk that I'm willing to take. And just for listeners that, you know, have never heard of a self-directed IRA, basically uh, an old 401k, if you quit the job or if you have an IRA, which, you know, basically sits in a, in a brokerage, I didn't even know these things existed. And I went looking for different things, you know, out there for managing my money before I handed it over to a financial advisor. There's a self-directed IRA, which is basically, it's just an IRA, except you get to control what goes into. So instead of it sitting you know, at TD, TD Ameritrade, and that IRA can only access the products that they'll let you access, which will be stocks, bonds, and some things like that. A self-directed sits at basically as a custodian, which is like a brokerage store, but a, a custodian, which allows you a broader range of 
products and things you can put that money into. Basically, it frees up, it takes the chains off an IRA and lets you put it into, you can put it in the gold if you want. You can put it into a business investment. You can put it into apartments or self-storage. It's basically, it's just an IRA that isn't chained down by the restrictions that the big financial firms put on their IRAs, which makes them basically only investable into the products that they want to offer you. It's basically all it is. It's just an IRA that's broader for people that understand that. And you can roll things into a self-directed IRA from an existing IRA, old 401k. You basically can just move it. You can move part of your money if you want to. It basically just frees yep. it up. So, Yep. And let's talk about, Brian, the elephant in the room. Okay, your financial advisor or your financial planner who may try to discourage you from putting your money in a self-directed IRA. Okay, you know, by you moving your money, you're taking away from the admin fee. So, uh, in my opinion, I tell individuals, you know, just like to be, you know, clear cut. I mean, you know, they are incentivized for individuals to keep their money in their accounts, whereas they're telling them what to do: get freedom, get diversified, right? Look for ways that you can control your own money. And I tell folks that, and you know, some folks don't want to hear it, but it is what it is. These, these, these financial advisors, they're the elephants in the room that want you to keep your money with them so they can keep collecting their fees and they can limit the power you have to diversify. So it's a, that's the question you know, I tell everyone, the question you should look in the mirror and ask yourself. So same here. Yeah. I was at a, a party a few weeks ago and talking to a few people about that. And I, you know, I, I tread lightly, obviously, um, could be but touching, my backstory right? is I hired a financial advisor when I had a good chunk of money. I was like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't feel qualified to make these decisions. Like I had been trading the stock market and managing my money for oh, really? wow, 15, okay. 15, 15 years, but then I sold some businesses and the numbers got a lot bigger. I'm like, man, like I put a lot of time into trying to research this stuff and I still can't figure out the stock market beyond just averages like i can just put it in smp or put it in a, an etf but so it's like I'm, i need to go to professionals went went to someone and where am i going with this so at this party basically i heard people recounting back to me what i was sold from the same investment advisor oh well if you die this person your wife can just go to this person and they know everything that's going on with your finances and they have a plan that they're following and they'll just take care of everything and that gives me peace of mind. I was like, that's worth 1% of everything every year just so they can make a phone call and you know where your stuff is? Like, get a red folder and put it in the file cabinet and keep it updated. It's the same thing. Like, the math behind the 1%, and it's not 1% if you look at it, if you really dive in these documents, and it's hard. I did it and like trying to figure out what's the actual cost here. It's more than 1% typically. Yeah. Once all the, all the trading fees and all these other little compliance that fees. That you don't even things, see. You can't find them. You can't find them. They won't show up on a statement. They're just, they, they, they get, won't tell they get, you. They get placed in the trade. So as they're trading, these little fees are coming off and it's really hard to, to find them. The point is my financial advisor, when I went through it all, was guaranteeing he was going to meet the market average of the S&P 500. It said okay. right there that the graph showed expected performance and S&P 500 performance. And they were exactly, they're like 0.01% different. I'm like, so I'm, act, I'm being actively traded. So act, we're paying some party beyond his 1% to actively trade this account. And your plan is only to meet the S&P 500. Like, what's the point? What's and the it's point? diversified in like 135 stocks, which basically what's is, the what's the point of that? 
Sorry. You, 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 you could probably do better yourself and you could probably save yourself some fees if you really kind of got up to speed and got educated, right? So, I mean, that's what most people, right? As some people won't, right? They're always going to be a small sample size of folks. You, you, you can't, you can't tell them no different. They will just keep going the status quo, keep giving their, giving their money away, right? But I mean, yeah, what's the point? Profound it does take time and you have to want to learn this. It's a skill True. you need to learn. You don't need to be an expert on, you know, stock trading to do it yourself. You can, yeah. Manage it yourself. If you just want to diversify it out into a few ETFs or a few funds, do it. That's all you really, that's all they're basically doing. Uh, every once in a while, they'll do some tax harvesting, which ha loss harvesting is basically just means they sell Chevron when it's down, they buy Exxon and they get you the tax savings from it. Um, that's something you can do. But, but it, takes, it takes a niche, right? I mean, to. I think the biggest thing that I have an issue with financial advisors is that they say that they are a fiduciary which means they have to be in your best interest, but it's only of the products that they offer. So mine in particular said that his his brokerage or his, you know, the company he worked for, you know, the, the large company that he was representative of only allowed him to do 10% alternate investing. So if I want to do oil and gas or real estate, he was only allowed to do 10%. And that's actually why I left him because that's I was like, look. why the 10%? Right. Like, why? He's like, oh, it's to protect you. It's to protect you. And that's why the rule is there. And I'm like, no, it's because you're just getting a load, an initial fee off that investment. It's not a recurring fee is why. And I found out that what that fee was when I did invest with them for a while because I ended up the next year investing in myself. I called the fund. I was like, hey, I want to invest again. And I found the real cost and it wasn't the number I paid. Um, anyways, the point is, even if you don't you know, take all your money out of the stock market and do it yourself, just realize that you probably should have a at least a part of it on your own in a self-directed IRA or in a cash. You don't have to give it all to your financial advisor and just realize just that- get diversified. Get just diversified. Just realize that, they, yeah, their version of diversification isn't what's out in the market. And they even call like what we do, alternate investing. It almost has like, it's like bad name, not alternate, like, like as if there's investing and then it's alternate options. Like, no, it's, it's outside what the financial firms want to offer. And if you look at most wealthy people and almost all- Family offices, which you can probably speak to, they are investing heavily outside the stock market and bonds market. into the things we're talking about. So oh, that should say it, something. It's a whole eye-opening experience at a different type of things they're investing in. Real estate, cannabis, <laughs> medical. I mean, it's eye-opening experience. Venture, venture capital. Venture capital, yes. Yeah. Yes. A little, a little bit of everything, literally. So pretty cool. Let's do one more basic question, just because I haven't sure. actually covered this on my podcast. I'm going to state that again because I stuttered for some reason. No, you're good. All good. <laughs> so let's cover one more basic question that I actually haven't covered, and it's accredited versus sophisticated investors. I think some of my previous guests have, have mentioned this, but I actually haven't covered it yet. Can you just give a quick overview of what an accredited investor versus a sophisticated investor is and how that may limit or open what investments they can do outside in, you know, real estate and self-storage and these other assets. Mm -hmm. In order to be an accredited investor, if you're single, you must make at least $200,000 a year annually for two consecutive years. If you're married, you and your spouse or significant other must make $300,000 annually consecutively for two year for two years. You know, being accredited versus non-accredited really gives choice to the type of offerings you can participate in. 
So for example, me and my wife, right? We, you know, my wife has since retired, but you know, I've worked many jobs and we've met the threshold of being a couple making $300,000 a year consecutively for two years. And that allows us to participate in offerings, particularly 506C, which is specifically for accredited investors only. If you or a million dollars that, net worth. Or, or a million dollars in net worth. Yep, that can work as well. Not including your primary home, right? So that's another parameter if you fall within that ordeal, right? And there's verification services that can allow you to cross-check to see do you fall within that, that primary uh, ordeal. Uh, you can participate in the 506C offering. If you don't fall within that uh, respective uh, parameter and you have some general knowledge, or even enhanced knowledge of real estate and uh, understand the risks of participating in an apartment uh, opportunity deal slash syndication, you would fall in under the 506B parameter. So if you're under, if you're single, you're under $200,000 a year for two consecutive years of you and your wife or significant other, you're under that $300,000 a year parameter or if you're less than a million dollars in overall net worth, you can participate in the 506B offering. So there's varying differences. It's critical to have a, what we call the acronym PFS, personal financial statement. That is something everyone should have. Should everyone should know and understand their financial position, and it should be updating it at least thirty to sixty days, kind of understanding your position and to kind of see how your finances looked, and to understand can you uh, participate in these type of offerings. So hopefully, I, uh, I articulated that uh, in my my professor hat on, even though yeah, <laughs> yeah. that was good. It was read almost straight from the SEC uh, guidelines. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, oh. So sophisticated, yeah. yeah. So yeah. sophisticated investors basically aren't accredited yet. So they there's certain funds out there and offerings they can participate in. Accredited investors basically are completely wide open, and the SEC basically at that point assumes that you uh, can manage your money well enough. If you make a bad investment, you're not going to go under, and they kind of take the chains off you as an accredited investor and let you uh, make the decisions to pick your pick who you play with uh, as broad as you want. Yep. Know, like, and trust the persons you're talking to, you're dealing with. Get educated by all means. Look, every opportunity is not going to be a home run. You know, I'm I'm in 11 deals. I'm in a lot. Every deal is not a home run. So just be mindful of that. Get educated. Ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask simple questions is what I tell individuals. The simple questions are sometimes the best ones if it helps you to learn. And I tell students that as well, even if I'm in a classroom setting. So, yeah. If you don't know what you're investing in, don't invest in it, basically. Don't 100%. just take the pretty, pic- the pretty picture and, and the good sales pitch. Don't do yeah. it. If you're, pitch, if you're just banking on, oh, yeah. It, yeah, it looks good. They said per- this percentage, don't do it. Know the person or really know what you're investing in. At least one of those two. One of those yeah, two. And establish parameters, right? I mean, have a certain target, whereas, you know, if it's under X from your target criteria point, don't do it. Keep moving. You know, that's what uh, we've established in terms of our core criteria points. We know where we want to invest. We know what our particular target internal rate of return. Everything's continuous improvement, like the old supply chain adage, right? In terms of individuals you're dealing with, got to know them, got to like them, got to trust them, got to know when shit hits the fan, how how is XYZ person going to react? In time of crisis, you got to know that your teammates are going to tread water at capacity or like you are and going to help uh, tackle issues for the betterment of the team and for the betterment of your investors. Protecting your investors' money versus your own should be the first and foremost and number one parameter in this uh, 
area of business, if you will. So, yeah, definitely looking at the the general partners and their ability to protect the initial investment number one of all the investors, and that has to do with their ability to commit time to the project or, or whatever venture you're going into. If it's multifamily, if it's self storage, whatever it is, is this a side gig they're doing at night, or is this you know they, do they have people on the team that can fly down there and spend a week there if they have to. And then do they have cash? Honestly, not everyone on the team needs to, but need to have a few people that have have a deep bank account if they need to go or, you know, credit lines or something that they're the first line of defense. I mean, ideally, they should have the business and the investment set up with a lot of reserves. You want to look at that. But the next layer of reserves is the general partners. The last layer of reserves are the passive investors slash capital calls, which isn't the end of the world. But if you get to that point, you better hope that the first two have been depleted first, basically. Yeah. So just get to know get to know the people. Don't just click on an advertisement on Facebook that looks pretty and watch a webinar and have some sales guy call you and, you know, watch out for that kind of stuff. Doesn't mean they're not good. Um, there's 506C offerings all, all time out there. They're advertising. But Try to get to know them. I mean, go to in-person events if they have one. If they have a podcast, watch them. You can learn about people if listening to 10 hours of podcasts of them speaking. You know, you can understand. If you listen to 10 hours of, of whatever, Bill Gates speaking, you can learn more about him than if you watched him for 20 minutes during a keynote presentation. It's the same basic philosophy. Um, not everyone like you and me can go spend weekends with people that we're investing in and really get to know them and, you know, see him at the dinner table and out camping or on the beach or in meetings. But what else? What's what's another takeaway we should, for the last one, if we have a passive investors is who I focus on. It's business owners that are probably in the stock market. You know what? I, I would say get diversified, get educated, start to slowly kind of see what other offerings are out. There is a better way in terms of uh, investing, in terms of opportunities. If one wants to take a further step, you know, seek education programs, right? I mean, now, Brian, I mean, every day there's a webinar in the evening, Sunday to Saturday. If you want to participate and get educated on multifamily, alternate investing, there's a webinar you can plug in. And it's free, Sunday to Saturday. And there's some good people that are doing some there's webinars. Some good I people mean, doing some Neil Bawa, I mean, I listen to him and he's speaking to passive investors, but... He's a great presenter, um, and obviously he wants you to invest with him. But Absolutely. you don't have to. I mean, you can still you take his to. information. Yeah, and and help help make self educated decision. Changing habits and mindsets uh, that's kind of a three sixty for me, man. You know, I'm a runner, right? We're a runner. You know, we we were you know we're runners, and uh, man, when I'm out on the trails now, you know, I'm I'm all for listening to somebody's podcast on multifamily, old capital series. Love listening to that stuff when I'm jogging. Helps the flow. And you're getting education while you're trying to improve your health, right? So, uh, you know, without health, right, there's no wealth, right? We, we, we're, we're pretty much, uh, that's some core core metrics that we that we try to live by. So uh, just get educated. There's a lot of in, intel out there. Go to Facebook. Like over 50 Facebook groups on real estate, multifamily. Join the groups, get to know people. I meet a lot of people who are looking to invest there. Really heavy hitters, first timers. So there's a lot of free stuff out there. If you're strapped to maybe say get into education program or stuff like that, there's ways to get around that. That's for sure. Are you in anything besides multifamily? Are you, are you looking at uh, self storage or anything like that? I am just we're passive, even stuff. passively. Yeah, we're yep. We're looking to try to be actively on self storage. There's a lot of opportunity in our own backyard, so it's a little uh, you know 
trying to underwrite it and go see, go do face to face with folks to kind of folks can see, uh, you know, they're, I'm a real person, if you will. So I'm learning that, uh, everyone's blitzing out postcards and mark and marketing materials. A lot of these guys, these mom and pop guys, they want to see you face to face. So uh, that's kind of, you know, making a difference and, uh, being flexible and mobile, you know, is key. It's good having a partner, right? Who can kind of, if I need to get out to say Cincinnati or whatever to go visit with someone, we're in a position or get on a flight to go somewhere, Texas, right? If there's some issues, we're able to do that. So uh, we've kind of arranged the situation to allow for flexibility for us to help us to grow uh, and really kind of keep our foot on the gas versus before way back when, right? I took my foot off the gas and be like, oh, if it comes, it comes. And I, it, it wasn't front and center to me from a mindset standpoint. So that has changed. That's funny. You mentioned mom and pop self-storage. I'm in Utah in this medium-sized town and there's several self-storage places that have probably been there since the 60s. They're clearly mom and pop owned, like just the sign and everything you can just tell. And I'm just like, man, how do you get a hold of that person and just see what their long-term game plan is? Because it's either an older couple or maybe it was handed down the family and it's sitting there on the main street, just the land alone that its value is. And it's, you know, it's... <laughs> It seems like a, a great opportunity if you can figure out how to crack that nut and actually get get in front of the owner. I th yeah, potentially. I mean, if if you're, if you're reaching out, man, obviously you can reach out and kind of get a script in place that you feel comfortable with. Reach out to them, and you never know. If you're close by, man, having that sit down, mate, potentially it could uh, could get you to leg up, right? So because everyone's funny. getting marketing yeah. material, right? I mean, even on my single family stuff, I get bombarded with just marketing material, right, in terms of postcards. And, are you, are you interested in selling so on and so forth? So, uh, yeah. Doing something a little bit different from a niche standpoint helps changes the game and give you the leg up. I'm always thinking about that now in terms of how can I be a little different than the next person to help kind of land that opportunity? I'm always thinking about that. Continuous improvement, man, to try to uh, give myself a better shot than someone else. It's a competitive nature, competitive landscape, right? So, yeah. Cool, man. How do people learn more about you? You have your podcast. You have Moreland Equity. Give us the rundown of how to, to follow Melvin and Jacqueline. Sure. Uh, you can follow me and my wife, Jacqueline. We have our website, uh, morelandequity.com. So that's M-O-R-L-A-N-D, equity.com. If you go to YouTube, we have a podcast, Get Diversified. You type in Get Diversified Podcast in the search. I shouldn't be that hard to, to miss. So me and my wife, we're on there together. Uh, we're on Apple Podcasts as well. We are frequent participants in many uh, mastermind groups. Education is the great equalizer. As a professor myself, I'm always looking for ways to continue to kind of enhance my mindset, change my habits for perfection, and live my life for trying to get better 1% every day. That's what I live by, and uh, it's going well, man. So real happy and excited to be uh, in this new arena Growing by leaps and bounds has been fantastic. And uh, knowledge is power, man. So getting as much as I can, plug in at least three to five days a week, Brian, on a webinar, podcast, listening, in the grand scheme of uh, working, right? Getting the little guy off to activities and, uh, you know, got to be a husband and a dad too. So uh, first and foremost. So uh, yeah, good balance, but it's good, man. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast and uh, make sure to put all the info in the show notes. Sounds good, man. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Appreciate it.